0: The scripture reading this morning comes from select passages, John 13, verses 1 through 17. Verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is God's word.
1: For the past several months, we've been looking at the gospel according to John. And we've been saying that the first half of the gospel according to John is, uh, really captures the first three years of, of Jesus' ministry, and John spends an enormous amount of time, the second half of this book, really focusing on the last week of Jesus' life. So now people are plotting his death. Death is looming over the shoulder of Jesus. And yet, yet, if you look at Jesus, everyone's angry at him. Everyone's plotting against him. They're even plotting against his friends. And yet, John uses the word love to capture Jesus' heart during this time. You don't see any anxiety. You don't see any fear. There's no anger. He's not blaming anyone. There's no accusations. He's so resolved. Jesus is so gentle, so resolved, so intimate with his friends, with his people. Now, if you only had one week left to live, who you choose to see, what you do, what you say, everything's going to be intentional. Everything's going to be significant. And in this passage, what do you see? Jesus chooses to meet with his disciples. He actually chooses to eat with them in this very special meal. What he's saying is, I want to be intimate with you. Ancient meals prepared in that way only happen between people who were very intimate with each other. Jesus says, I want to be intimate with you. He washes, what does he do? He washes his disciples' feet and then he teaches them. So there are three points today. What he did, why he did it, what it teaches us. What he did, why he did it, what it teaches us. And so we're going to focus first on what he did. Text says that it was just before this Passover feast, the Last Supper, the other Gospels uh, also capture this portion, this episode, this narrative. And uh, some of the other Gospels, they note that the disciples at this time in the meal were arguing who would be the greatest, who would be the greatest, Because they saw Jesus as the king. They saw Jesus as their lord. They expected at some point, very soon, Jesus would come and pretty much take over all of his oppressors. And so they were arguing about what their roles would be. What would their roles be? Some of them thought they would be the secretary of state. Others, they thought they would be generals. Others, they thought, well, they they were arguing over, you know, I'm gonna be the the rook. You're gonna be the pawn. They said, no, I'm gonna be the pawn. You're gonna be the rook. What does Jesus do? Jesus, it says, says, knew that he had come from God and that he was shortly going to be returned to God. So in verse 4, what does he do? He gets up from the meal, takes off his outer clothing, wraps a towel around his waist, pours water into a basin and starts to wash his disciples' feet. Drying them with the towel, the towel that was wrapped on his waist. Now, the disciples, they're horrified. They're absolutely horrified by this. They're indignant about this. They start to rebuke Jesus about this. But Jesus says, If I, your Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. What he's saying is, this is what I'm about. All these years you've been with me, all this time you've been with me, this is what I'm about. I have come to be your king, but I have come to be your servant king. What's a servant king? There are four things, very quickly, we're going to go into this, four quick things that teach us what a servant king is in this passage. First, verses 3 to 5, Jesus lowered himself. It says he came down. He lowered himself. He remembered that he came come from God and uh, he, the hour had come for him to return to God. And so what did he do? Knowing that he would return to God, knowing that he had come from God, he gets down and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. He lowers himself. He leaves the place of honor at the table. He sets aside his normal garments, the royal garments, so to speak. And in the same way, the Bible says, though he's a king in all eternity, Though he's the almighty God, he came down and he became a human being. The second thing it teaches us is that he washed his disciples' feet. He got dirty with them. Feet, when you look at the Middle Eastern climate, the roads, there were no real roads. There were dirt roads, right? And so there was no waste management system to take care of these roads or the streets. And so people literally just poured waste outside of their homes, whatever type of waste they had, trash, And people had inadequate footwear. And so you're practically walking in bare feet in these mismanaged uh, roads filled with waste, excrement. There was no deodorant. And so if you want to enjoy a banquet, you needed perfume because the smell was so bad, you needed to put on perfume, pour perfume on your feet, pour it on your head, some sort of uh, perfume, oil. And, and, And you were so dirty. People were so dirty that the laws often prevented even the lowliest of servants from washing people's feet. It was so bad. It was considered inhumane to get somebody to do that. Not even a slave, not even an indentured servant was asked to do that. And yet, here's Jesus taking on a job that is so low, almost offensive, and, he, and what does he do? He, he gets down. This is the Redeemer Jesus. This is the Messiah Jesus. This is the King. He gets down. He kneels. He washes their feet. And whose feet does he wash? He washes his disciples' feet. And who among the disciples? Even Judas. Verse 2, we know that Judas has already been prepared to betray Jesus. And yet Jesus washes his feet. Look at the grace of God. Look at the grace of Jesus. Not only did he lower himself, but he disgraced himself. He dishonored himself. He crushed. He had himself crushed. He would die. He gets dirty. That's Jesus. The third thing it teaches us is that Jesus is willing to take the hit for us. Now, that phrase, taking the hit, where does it come from? It comes from football. If any of you have played football, many people watch football. We're about to watch our team take a hit today, right? Um, in football, if you, it takes. I shared this image illustration before. You have a quarterback who hikes the ball. He's got about three seconds when he drops back. Depending on how many steps he takes back, there are linemen that are designed to protect this quarterback. But every so often, actually in every play, the line breaks down because you have people punching through the gap between these linemen. You have linebackers who punch through the gap, squeeze in between these linemen, and charge like a pretty much a freight train. With all the force of their weight, they go charging right at this quarterback, and their job is to take him out. This quarterback has about a split second to make a decision. He can kneel, or he can slide. He can run away and slide, and therefore avoid getting hit by this freight train that's coming at him. Or what he can do is In that split second, he can release with his arm with all the strength that he's got, pinpoint accuracy, the ball gets thrown over to a wide receiver who just beat out the cornerback that was guarding him. In that split second, he's got to make a decision. And if he can make that pass, well, he scores, and they can win the game, they can get a touchdown, that's how it happens. But in so doing, in that split second, that linebacker is going to crush him. He can either kneel He can avoid this hit and kneel, or he can take the hit and lead his team into glory. Jesus came to take the hit. What's a servant? A servant is someone who lowers himself and says, I didn't create this mess, much like the quarterback. The quarterback didn't create that mess over there in the blind side. That linebacker squeezed through the gap, who do you blame? It's nuanced. It could be a lot of people's fault. Maybe somebody didn't cover him, but the quarterback can say, I'm going to take the hit. Jesus says, I didn't create the mess, but I'm going to clean it up. I'm going to bear the cost. I'm going to lower myself. I'm going to get dirty. I'm going to clean this mess up. I'm going to take the hit. Now listen, this world is a mess. This world is broken. This broken, and that brokenness, we have lots of reasons for that brokenness. People have political reasons. People can blame uh, politics. People can blame education. People can blame uh, the crime that's in our, in our society, in our community. But the brokenness, in a sense, is very nuanced, and it's incredibly complex And you can't just blame any one single thing. Now, think about your own life. You could have badly hurt somebody in your life. You could have been hurt by many people in your life. It's easy to blame people. It's easy to take credit. But what Jesus does, he says, I didn't create the mess. But I'm going to clean up the mess. And for me to clean up the mess, I'm going to get dirty and I have to take the hit. So Jesus bears the infinite cruelty of the sins that have been caused over centuries and the misery of centuries and he bears it on the cross and then he dies. Jesus takes the hit. The gospel says this. The gospel teaches us that our sins cannot bring us into condemnation. That means that your sin does not stand. It used to stand between you and God. There was a great chasm between us and God because of the dirt, because of the filth, because of the stink. But because of the gospel, because Jesus took the hit, he lowered himself, he got dirty, and he took the hit. That filth, that stink, that dirt is gone. Somebody has to bear that. Somebody's got to bear that price. Somebody's got to bear the sins. Either you're going to bear the sins or somebody else is going to bear the sins. You're going to make other people bear the weight of the sins because you think they deserve it. But no matter what happens, if sin is eternal separation between our relationship with God, in our relationship with God, the brokenness that results is commensurate with that sinfulness, with that separation. God is absent. And when God is absent, there's going to be tremendous brokenness. And that means somebody is going to pay the cost. If you do nothing about it, you're going to pay the cost. Other people are going to pay the cost. Jesus Christ said, I'm going to pay the cost. And he literally gets dirty in this passage. And so why does he do that? So that you would be clean. So that you'd be radiant. So that you'd be noble. So that you'd be as beautiful as he is. The fourth thing this teaches us is that he did it voluntarily. Nobody asked him to do it. At least nobody, you know, we needed that. We need to be clean. We see this later on in the text. But Jesus voluntarily gets up. And under no obligation... He says, no one can take my life from me unless what? I lay it down on my own accord, and I'm going to do it for you. He's saying there's nothing. By doing what he's doing, this is a remarkable thing. Not only for a rabbi to clean the feet of his own disciples, but this is the king of kings going down and getting dirty and paying the cost. By doing that, Jesus is saying, and by doing what he did here, the example that he set in front of his disciples to clean their feet in the middle of a meal, he says, there is nothing beneath my dignity that I would not do for my people, even those who betray me, even people who use me, even people who sell me out. That's humility. That's amazing humility. Look at the humility of Jesus. Now remember the disciples they were arguing over who is going to be the greatest. They're saying no I'm the rook you're the you're the pawn. No I'm the pawn you're the I'm the rook you're the pawn. And they're arguing with each other well, really what they're doing is they're fighting they're saying this is hand to hand combat might makes right. Subversion. The greatest philosophers in the world say that all of life is a power play. You start with Henry Ford Henry Ford during the turn of the Industrial Revolution, right? Henry Ford said that America is about capitalism. What is capitalism? Survival of the fittest. That means that whoever can, can monopolize, or at least back then that was at least somewhat allowable, right? Whoever can conquer, whoever has power, whoever is more innovative, whoever can, can outlast the other, survival of the fittest, that's capitalism at its best on the flip side of the world you have communism communism if you read uh the marxian dialectic it begins with a thesis and for every thesis there is an antithesis so if you have a thesis class the upper class there is always going to be antithesis class the lower class and the marxian dialectic goes what life is all about a struggle between the upper and the lower classes but that's not very much different from capitalism Because if capitalism is man against man, the Marxian dialectic is also then class against class, which is another form of man against man. It doesn't matter which side of the world you live on, everything in the world speaks of subverting, power. All of life is a power play. Jesus Christ says, you want power, then you gotta give it up. You wanna be great, then you have to go down. You wanna live forever? then you have to lay your life down. That's what he says. The kingdom is not advanced through might, but through humility, through weakness. There's nothing so beneath me that I would not do for you. There's no distance so far that I would not cross for you. There is no demand that is so great that I can't meet it for you. There is no sickness that I would not touch to heal. intimacy tremendous intimacy this is true kingliness i mean jesus christ is really showing us he's really taking our definition of kingliness and he flips it upside down and he says true kingliness is someone who lowers himself right jesus got down someone who gets dirty he washes their feet someone who takes the hit he becomes their servant cleans up the mess pays the cost and he does it voluntarily. Isaiah chapter 53, which is really a uh, a poem, really a poem and a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Really, it talks about Jesus, and he says that he was satisfied to save the people that he loved. He looked at, uh, that means in his suffering, it describes the suffering in detail. It says, in his suffering, he looked out, and he was satisfied. My suffering servant was satisfied at seeing the people that would be saved. That's an amazing thing. That's what he did. Now, why did he do it? In verses six to seven, Peter had a hard time with this. And so what he does is he says, are you gonna wash my feet? He rebukes Jesus. Really what he's saying here is, Jesus, this is beneath us. This is beneath me. This is beneath you. If this is beneath me, this is beneath you. And Jesus, you know, mainly what he's saying is, I'm embarrassed. It it embarrasses me to see you lowering yourself like this, cleaning my feet. I can't take this. That's really what he's saying. And Jesus Christ in verse 12 says, do you understand what I've, what I've done for you? What he's saying is, I want you to think about this. Don't leave your mind at the door. I want you to think about what I'm doing for you. He wants us to get it. He wants us to understand this. Peter didn't understand. Peter didn't get how bad he was. Peter didn't get how dirty he was. He didn't see the need. Either he's thinking, well, my feet can't be that bad or they're bad, but you shouldn't be the one. You're too above this. We're too above this. We live above the knees, right? Somebody else should be doing this, not us. How you perceive Jesus will set your expectation of what he is to do. It's going to set your expectation of yourself in response. If Jesus, on one hand, if Jesus Christ is a servant but not a king, then he's going to work for you. He's going to serve you. But your life isn't going to change. There's going to be no change in your life. And so your prayers really are going to be demands. They're going to be negotiations. They're going to be business transactions. They're going to be really subtle ways of manipulating God. And you can tell because when your prayers aren't answered over a certain period of time, depending on what you're praying for, the things that you value most in life, if you're not getting what you want, it's going to result in resentment, resignation, absence detachment from god a lack of intimacy distance do you see that now on the other hand if jesus is your king but he's not your servant your lifestyle may change things may change in your life but you're the one that's got to work you're the one that's got to earn god's favor and so you're going to live out of fear and you need the king's acceptance but you're not really going to be clean and so you're never going to know where you stand do you see that Peter's thinking, this is so gross. This is disgusting. I'm supposed to eat next to you. We're fighting to be next to you, and you're so dirty now. I can't stand looking at you doing this. Peter doesn't see his need. Peter doesn't see his inability. But Jesus Christ, he's both servant and king. So on one hand, he's your king. He says, "You need." He says, Peter, you need to be clean. You need to be clean, Peter. On the other hand, he says, unless I wash you. I will clean. On one hand, he has to be king. You need to be clean. On the other hand, I am the servant. I must clean you. Peter says, no way, no way. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. He's thinking about the cross. He's saying, Peter, there is a filth that you have that no one can reach. No one can clean. No one would even dare go near. That's why there are power plays in your life. Because you're trying to cover over your inadequacies. You're trying to cover over your insecurities. You you look ugly. You feel ugly. You know why you feel ugly? You think it's because of something on the outside, but it's because of something on the inside. Something that no one can reach. And you try to cover it over. You try to hide it. You try to spice it up with a good resume. You try to spice it up with hard work and effort. You try to spice it up with religion and goodness. That's what you're trying to do. You don't want people to get into your mess. You don't want people to get in and deal with the core smell, the core dirt in your life. That's why you're defensive when people come near it. That's why you blame other people to deflect attention. That's why you justify yourself. We're always justifying ourselves. The very word to justify, we're trying to be clean. Deep inside, we all object to the truth. Every one of us objects to the truth that we're in such dire straits that the only person who can come down and clean us and save us and rescue us is God. We can't deal with the fact that we're helpless. And so, in essence, everything we do, we're trying to clean up ourselves to make ourselves acceptable. We're trying to, that's why we need to be successful, that's why we need to find love. That's why we need the approval of people around us, the people that we value. And as a result, we're tired and we're overlooked, we're overworked, and we're angry and we're envious. And we're snobby and we end up more broken and we end up, this is an endless cycle. We end up more jealous. It corrodes us on the inside. It destroys us on the inside. Behold the most powerful king, the most powerful king that ever lived who became a servant, who went down to the depths, to the core, to the filth, down to your feet to clean you. And he says, I dare to do that. I dare to clean. Look at the love of God. Look at the compassion of God. Look at the grace of God. Look at the humility of Jesus. Look at the courage. He says, I dare to go down there. Look at the kingliness, the true kingliness of Jesus. Look at the servant nature of Christ. It's beautiful. It's remarkable. It's amazing. Now, imagine after the 12 uh, disciples, they've been washed. What happens? The smell and the filth and the 12 men, 12 men who traveled the distance in that heat, through that trash, through the, the filth to come to dinner. All their smell, all their filth, all their sweat, the dirt, the grime, the trash, it's now in the nails of Jesus. It's now on his clothes. And, and now he comes back to sit down. Can you imagine he comes back to sit down and, and you're next to him and you smell him And plus, he's been working, so it's his sweat, his labor, right? It's on his clothes. Verse 4, the text mentions that Jesus, he took off his garments. Now, in the Greek, that's the same phrase that's used when Jesus says in chapter 10, which we covered weeks ago, the good shepherd is willing to lay down his life. It says he he took his clothes and he laid them down. He laid down his garments. In other words, the act of laying down his garments represented him laying down his life. Only servants laid down their garments. It's the ultimate act of servanthood. The ultimate act of servanthood is what Jesus is demonstrating here, laying down his life. Only the lowliest people knelt. Only the lowliest people would lower themselves like this. Only the lowliest of people washed. Jesus became the lowliest. Only servants poured water. Whether it's in a cup or in a basin, only servants did that. Jesus pours water in the lowest place, on the floor. Jesus gets dirty. In Psalm chapter 22, verse 14, it's a very messianic psalm. It's a psalm about Jesus while he was on the cross. If you read that entire psalm, you're pretty much reading the mind of Christ while he's on the cross. And one of the verses, it reads, verse 14, it says, I'm being poured out like water. Jesus is demonstrated in the ultimate act of being a servant. He lays his life down. Jesus Christ was stripped naked, meaning he took the hit. He took lots of hits. He took lots of blows. He laid his life down, and he did it voluntarily. He did it with gladness. He didn't do it like he was forced to do it. He did it with gladness. He chose to enter back into Jerusalem to save Lazarus, knowing that that would mark the beginning of the end of his life. On the cross, The cosmic sum of our mess. The cosmic sum of our filth. The cosmic sum of all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our sin. Think about all the baggage that each person in this room carries. The guilt and the shame and the suffering and the pain. Multiply that by centuries and centuries of the population of God's people. And that was placed on Christ. All the filth. All the sin. And as, bl- as his blood is being poured out, Jesus Christ is lowering himself as the ultimate servant. Why? So that we get to sit clean at the king's table. It's an amazing imagery. What he's doing here in this supper, it's an amazing image of the servant kingliness of Christ. On the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, God, I'm so disgusting. Look at me. But God turned his face. He says, now I'm really filthy. Now I'm really dirty. Now I'm really messy. Everything that I am, everything that I have, it determines, it deserves the wrath of God. And so what does God do? He turns his face away from Jesus. And what God is saying there is, I cannot even stand to look at you. I cannot, Jesus says, you cannot even stand to look at me doing this because I'm so messy, I'm so disgusting. I've become sin and I'm being poured out. I'm being poured out like water. Why? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the gospel in one verse. If you want to look for the gospel in one verse, this is what it is. is: Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means the king became a servant. That means the righteousness of God became sin. Why? So that the servant can become king. So that the sinfulness of man, so that our sin, we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on the filth. Jesus took on our stench. Jesus took on our death, the death that we deserved. Jesus took on our wrath, the wrath of God that we deserved. Jesus took the cosmic hit The cosmic wrath, on the cross, the cosmic wrath of the penalty of our sin that we deserve was being just poured out. Jesus was taking it blow by blow so that the righteousness of God, so that the love of God, so that the freedom of God would just cleanse us, just pour out on us. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Never minimize the need to continually go to the cross. Never minimize the need for Jesus to clean us. Open yourself up to Jesus. You know, where are the dirtiest places in your life? Places that no one really knows. I'm talking the nuanced places. You know, our sin, is, it, it's easy to look at another person's sin and kind of lay it out. I bet you, if I were to take, it, most people sit next to people who are pretty close to them. It could be your spouse, spouses. If you were to turn to your spouse, and lay out, some of you are newlyweds, you've been with your spouse maybe a few months at best, I bet you, if I were to ask you, can you could you know just the sin tendencies of your spouse, you'd be able to lay it out, even after just a few months. God knows us to the core, to the core. And he knows us so deeply, and he says, I dare to go there, but the thing is, he says, I, I, he knows every motivation of every good thing that we do. Every rotten Every manipulative motivation that we have, he knows it. We're the dirtiest, dirtiest places that no one would dare to go, that nobody would even know to go. Are you too proud? Are you too scared to go to him? Are you too skeptical? He said, but I'm not pure, I'm impure. Do you feel overworked? Do you feel used? You know, in friendships, uh, as you come together and uh, mix in a society of people, whether it's in the workplace or in the church or even in your family, it's so easy to feel used. Do you feel like you're a slave to sins, certain sins? We call that addiction. Everyone has an addiction. Look to Jesus. He is gentle. He is gracious. He is kind. He is more kind than any pastor you'll ever know. He is more gracious than any minister you could ever go to. He is more gentle than any counselor you could ever go to. Kings alone, a king by himself will hammer you into the law, will hammer you into obedience. But Jesus is the serving king. He gets down, he gets dirty. He's going to melt you with his love. So we talked about what he did. We talked about why he did it. Lastly, what does that teach us? In verses 15 to 17, Jesus says, I washed your feet. Now go and wash others' feet. What he's saying is to serve. I am your servant in the same way I want you to be be a servant. I want you to serve. I want you to lower yourself. I want you to get dirty. I want you to learn to take the hit, substitute, sacrifice for other people, substitute for other people, and I want you to do it voluntarily. I want you to do it voluntarily as a response to me taking the hit for you. That's kingly love. That's kingdom love. Now, some people, when they hear what I just said, what they think I said is, what what this pastor is saying is, Jesus Christ served, and so he, he wants me to serve like him. He is our teacher and Lord, so I need to serve. I need to serve in order to get God's honor, to get God's approval. That's not gonna melt you into the heart of Christ. I'm telling you right now, that's that's not gonna melt you into the heart of Christ. If you serve, and as a result, you're serving because you expect to be noticed, because you say, if I don't serve, I'm not gonna be acceptable to God. I need to serve so I can be noticed by God. Then you're just gonna fight. You're gonna fight like the disciples. You're gonna fight for a place at the sea. You're going to fight for a place at the table. You're going to be fighting like these disciples. It's not going to melt you into the heart of Christ. You're still doing power plays. Do you see that? This, you know, Christmas is a wonderful thing because uh, on, on the day Christ was born, the angels came and they, they, they came before these shepherds. And what did they say? Peace on earth. What they're really saying is that there was a cosmic war That is waged throughout the centuries, from the dawn of time, from the history of man, the beginning of the history of man. But now there can be peace, because that war that's been waged with God because of sin is over. The angels were declaring peace when Jesus was born. Peace can actually reside on earth. It's the end of the fighting. It's the end of the fighting to be noticed. It's the end of the fighting uh, to be acceptable, because you're already accepted in Christ. Because you're already known in Christ. Jesus says, I know my sheep. I call them each by name. Look at the intimacy that he desires of his people. That's going to melt you into the love of Christ. Do you see that? You cannot judge the love of Christ based on how well you serve. It's going to consume you with pride if you succeed. It's going to consume you with guilt or anger or jealousy or fatigue if you fail. Do you see that? Unless you see that the king of all kings came down, knelt down, got dirty, he undignified himself, debased himself, lowered himself, laid down his garments, and he became filthy, he became sin for you, you your heart will not be melted, you will not sense the call to serve other people. But if you do, you're gonna be able to let down the sum of your dignity. There's nothing too low for you. You're going to be able to let down, you're going to be able to bow out of that rat race. You're going to be able to do that. You're going to end the power plays. Now, it's easy to get hurt when people um, slight you. It's easy to be hurt by that. But it's the end of the fighting. You can lay down. Do you understand that? You're going to see that the way up is down. That true kingliness is being a servant. You're not going to need to prove your worth. Christ on the cross, now, if you look at Christ on the cross, there is your validation. There is the worth that you've been looking for all your life. There is the acceptance that you've been longing for all your life. There is the love that you need, that you've needed all your life. That's going to humble you. It's going to humble you to the degree where you can lower yourself because you know you didn't deserve it. You did nothing to earn it. That's going to humble you. But you needed it. You needed it, but you did nothing to earn it, and you received it. Christ gave it gladly. The thing is, he gave it gladly. He volunteered. He just got up and did that out of his great love for you. That's gonna humble you, but it's also gonna give you confidence. Why? Because he did it for you. It's personal. He thought of you. He loves you. He chose to give it gladly. There's nothing you can do to lose that love of God There's nothing that you can ever do. If you did nothing to earn it, you can do nothing to lose it. You see that? And so out of love for Jesus and because he's king, we're going to serve him. You're going to be able to lower yourself for other people. You're going to be able to get into the mess of other people's lives. You're going to be able to get into their dirt. You're going to want to do that. You're going to serve in the trenches. And you're going to say, there's nothing that God cannot ask of me. That's a lot of reasons why people have a hard time. They're afraid to come to Jesus because they're afraid of what Jesus is going to ask of them. You're going to say there's nothing. If you really see what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, you're going to say there's nothing that you cannot ask of me. There's nothing that is beneath me. Christian service commits to bringing other people to the Lord as a servant of the Lord. The opposite of that is selfish service, right? Selfish love desires uh, your own status, desires to bring people close so that you, they meet your needs, so that you feel better about yourself because you're leading or because you're serving. You see that? That's what kills churches, by the way. That kills churches. That's what starts all the fighting because of the selfish service. Christian service meets other people's needs through you. What you're saying when you look at a person, he says, I, want, I so much want you to be free. I so much want you to experience. I want your best, and I love you. Selfish service says, I need to be noticed. I need to be valuable. Christian service says, you're valuable. You're known. I see you, and if I see you, that means the kingdom of God that comes with me sees you. I notice you. Christian service says, you're valuable. Why? Because I know that because Jesus noticed me. I want to close with this uh, poem. It's printed, I believe, it's printed in your bulletins. It's a poem by George Her- Herbert, and uh, I um, I've walked this poem through with us in the past. Um, George Herbert was an Anglican priest, but he's also known to be an amazing poet. He's written many poems, many songs. Um, this poem is particularly about Jesus Christ as an innkeeper. I thought it's very fitting. He's kind of like a busboy or an innkeeper. And we are the patrons of his inn. And so uh, the poem is, it comes in many parts, but this is part three of the poem, Love. Love, me welcome. Yet my soul, because we're sinful, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. And so Jesus says, do you lack anything? And so we respond, a guest, I answered. A guest that's worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he i i'm unkind i'm ungrateful i cannot even look on thee love took my hand and smiling did reply who made the eyes but i true lord but i've marred them i've messed them up let my shame go where it deserves and know you not says love Who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love. So I did sit and eat. Look at the love of Christ, the welcome and the invitation of Christ, even now. You know, a lot of us, we come to the church and it's a routine worship service and we expect to see something and hear something routine and go through the motions. And that's a very, very mechanical relationship with God that we often live out. And the reason why we're doing that is because we still think, we still come to God as if he is a king and just a king. And, and surely he is worthy to be worshipped and if he was just that, we would worship it anyway. But what makes the gospel is so enriching and what makes church and even worship service on a Sunday so enlivening is because we come to him as a loving king he invites us he invites us he welcomes us he draws us in and the thing is he paid that price he paid the price of the inn for us with his own blood and he says, yes, on one hand, I'm the king, I'm the only one that can save you, I'm the, I'm the only one who can redeem you, I'm the only one who can rescue you, and so I serve. I am the king, and yet I serve. Will you come? And when you plant that truth into the soul, deep into the soul, wherever it can go, as deep as it can go, to the core, to the core of all of your motivations, to the core of all of your desires. You don't even need to be afraid because the desires themselves will change. And you will do things with gladness and joy. Let the gospel shape you. Let the gospel change you. Let the gospel transform you. Look at the beauty of Christ, the king. Look at the beauty of Christ as servant. Look at the filth of Christ and look at yourself and say, wow, he has cleansed me. Has he cleansed you?
0: Let's pray.